So I'll start with something really easy. Is anyone at all here feeling at all anxious about the times that we live in? Can I ask you to say out loud in some way that works in this room um, something of what you feel anxious about? Friends losing jobs. Mm. Friends losing jobs. I'll repeat them if... if yeah. Threat to democracy. Threat to democracy. Mm-hmm. Environmental crisis. Knife crime. Populism in the far right. What's the second word? Political situation. The political situation of the country in this moment. Poetry and mental health issues brought together. Interesting, yeah. Is there something? Yeah. Um, the financial imbalances. Um, the power of the few over really all of us, yeah. yeah. Homelessness. Sorry? Homelessness. Homelessness, right. It's, it's kind of never-ending, isn't it? Right, the, the systems that, that hold us back. So I'm, I'm going to talk for a little while. I have, some, I have some more questions for you. Thank you for introducing those into the room. I think we all walk around with a weight these days, and an unusual weight. It's a little bit different than 10 years ago or 15 years ago, um, I think. Or I'm getting older, and it feels different. It feels very different to me. So I have, um, I I live in the United States, and some of my good friends are public theologians, um, which is a treat for me. I get to learn all the time. Um, And they're really different from one another. So I'll start with probably the most complicated one, in in that she she was just here, and she's really controversial, and I'm not nearly as interesting as she is. She's always like this. I think people think she's putting on a persona, but she is who she is on a stage. And her name is Nadia Boltz-Weber. Um, and she has this inter- like an interesting delivery, and she's quite provocative. And that's literally who she is. She's edited a bit for public consumption. Um, but she was uh, her first work in public was as a stand-up comedian, and you can see it in her delivery style. My brother is also a stand-up comedian, um, and they're really good at getting your attention right, um, and getting you to think. So she says this, hope is in the placed place just past anxiety. So what she says, what she means is if you are anxious, in her words, you are super, super close to hope. It's interesting, right? So it kind of works for me because um, I feel anxious all the time and it makes me feel good that I might be near something better. Um, and this is what I want to talk about with you today. It's a big piece of it. So I'm not someone who lives with a diagnosis of anxiety. That's a real thing. And I don't want to make light of that and how we use the word. People that I love and who I'm close to um, live with that diagnosis. So I just want to bring that awareness into the room that we mean this as, as a feeling that we're having, that we feel comfortable talking about. Um, and you know, There's a popular meaning as well, as well as a clinical meaning, so I mean the popular meaning. But I am anxious in this time. So who I am, um, the current state of things as communicated to people like me, um, and maybe people like you through the news, I have no insider information about the current state of things, makes me really anxious. So in my country, the one in which I vote and have a public voice, we have children held in cages for the great crime of movement. Children. Um, And from what I hear on your news, you're about to make that illegal here as well. Movement along a landscape, in my context, that has always had the movements of people in pretty much the same patterns that we have today since the first people came to the Americas. 
Ironically, or maybe simply historically accurately, so many of these people detained for moving are descendant of the native peoples of the Americas. They are the ancient peoples walking along our ancient paths as we have on the planet from the very beginning in search of food and water and safety. I am anxious because the pileup of human beings on the Mexico side of our border is a human rights catastrophe that we seem unable to do anything about. People are dying for lack of medicine, shelter, food, and hope. And this is happening in my country while we watch inequality grow in our neighborhoods in such a way that it can be politicized, right, activated, to make us terrified of people walking along these ancient paths in the exact same despair. The rhetoric that we have at home is maybe they got tricked into coming up. Some say that. They thought there was a path to get in when they got to our border. What's interesting is they are right about international law. That actually is exactly how it works. They are right. We have been tricked as to how it works. They absolutely have a right to claim asylum once in the United States and live in peace while they await a court date to determine their immigration status. That actually is exactly how it works, except that you can't get in anymore. In my country, it's these really funny little things. Like you said, the people that control everything control way too much. In my country, it's just the lack of court dates, actually, that is the problem, the backup in the legal system. It leaves a process that makes complete sense on paper, like all of our plans to care for those who are in need. It leaves that process actually simply a vulnerable person, very often a person fleeing domestic violence, tied to political violence, in the place they come from, should be before a judge that understands international human rights law and the systems of social support potentially available for the person standing in front of them and makes a quick determination. We actually have systems like that for most of our problems of inequality in our country. And that would mean that this person can start their life in our country with some kind of legal status to work. Or you are returned quickly to your own country and may God bless them because for many this is certain death. So I feel anxious because I can see how it's supposed to work. We know how it should work. But it doesn't seem to be working that way anymore. And there seems to be nothing we can figure out how to do. It's been years to create enough outrage for what already is in place to work. And I'm saying this very slowly and deliberately, not just for the microphone, but because I know that you are in the same place in this country, aren't you? We know how it's supposed to work. We know who we are. So I feel anxious because we as a country who used to tell a story of abundance, a great American blustery story of abundance, loud and thumping on pulpits, right? We are turning away from our, oh, sorry, I feel because we used to tell a story of abundance as we turned away from our historic systemic failures, but we as a country always had a story of abundance, abundant blue skies, big skies we call them, from here to there, the landscape is like that, where I come from. I was born and spent most of my childhood in Texas where the sky is grand. 
You can watch rainstorms come in in Texas. They literally start over there. And you can watch them come towards where you are. And if you sit out in what is often warm rain with the sun still shining, because the sky is so big like that, you can watch the storm pass in the sky. We know in a place like Texas that we are small and that we are wanderers. It is that border that those people come to. We are clearly travelers. In a landscape oriented to a big sky and a flat prairie, there is room enough for everyone. And we are insignificant in the very visible grand scheme of things. And our heritage is we left people alone to live their lives in that space. We needed each other. We need workers. Right? We needed our communities. In New York, where I've lived as an adult, we have more of a sense of our own grandeur. We are very full of ourselves in New York City and the grandeur of the human endeavor. But we too have said, historically, come to these shores, make your life, specifically inscribed on the Statue of Liberty who stands in New York Harbor. You can see her clearly from where I live and where I work at Trinity Church on Wall Street. The Emma Lazarus poem, The New Colossus, inscribed on it, is memorized by American children in school. It's ironic in this time that we all know this poem by heart. There's no reason you should, so I'll read the beginning of it to you. And it's a, it's a bit American, so I apologize in advance. Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land, here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch, whose flame is the imprisoned lightning, and her name, Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome, her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that twin cities frame. Keep, ancient lands, your storied pomp, cries she, with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore, send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Every one of us memorizes this as a child. Everyone. Very American, right, that Lazarus wrote this poem as part of a fundraising project to pay for a pedestal to put the statue on. It's very us. There are hilarious pictures of parts of the Statue of Liberty lying in parts in different parts of New York City when it first arrived because there was actually no plan to put it anywhere. It's very us. The city had not agreed to the gift correctly, and it arrived. And it was very, very big. And it was made to mark the end of slavery in our country. Now that's lost in the story a little bit because this poem is so compelling and ended up inscribed on the base is about immigration and is in the harbor. It's by Ellis Island. But it was actually made by a French artist to mark the end of slavery. Now this is not that long after Haiti has become independent of France, right? that we are thinking through what this new world might look like. And so they decide to build this enormous statue for us. And it lay around Manhattan for quite a while while they figured out how to raise the money to make it stand up somewhere. So those huddled masses in the poem are Europeans, those left behind by the religious wars and the beginnings of industrialism and mercantilism in emerging capital markets falsely propped up by colonialism. These are people desperate enough to get on boats 
to an unknown place, and America was a wild place at that time with a lot of conflict, a place where they would face a discrimination unimaginable where they had come from, where they had been part of a group that had belonged, where they had come from, pushed out by circumstances to a place where they would be perpetually outsiders, but their children would become of the place, and they could not have imagined that either. That didn't happen in that way at that time. They could not have known what was possible. We have politicians in our world, I think you have some of this too, who by their names we know are descendants of that generation of immigrants. I can give you some examples. People with names like Trump and Pence and Cuccinelli, just off the top of my head. There's more. <laughs> but our narrative of who we are has changed. We don't have the freedom of movement that allowed their acknowledged wastrel or desperate, depending on your politics, ancestors to move back and forth across the earth seeking their fortune. Today we have a threat, it says, and it reads exactly like the scandal sheets of that time, exactly the same, the horrible language of vermin and of outsiders. At that time it meant Germans terrorists with political agendas from their homelands. Even the English, it was written, in some places might come back and try to take the country. Potentially terrorists, every single one. It was part of our political life as well at the turn of the last century. The times weren't that different. There was threat of war everywhere, and we know how that turned out, right? And political and economic realities were changing quickly. We were in uncharted territory here and there. Movements, radically disorienting movements, right? Idealist movements like communism and anarchism, socialism were emerging. Rebellions against colonialisms and nationalisms, a political elite accustomed to shocking brutality against their fellow human beings. My country was on a colonial mission in Central America, in the Caribbean, and in Southeast Asia. And a lot of the people that were in those military conflicts were then in our government. So in the name of trade and power for U.S. corporations, supported by the newly developing and pretty ineffective at the time, U.S. military. I, as you know, William Dalrymple has an excellent new book out about how that worked in India with the British East India Company in the same way a little bit before. So it is in this time that Emma Lazarus writes this poem. And the city, at the heart of receiving, again, this very contested thing, this uh, statue, was receiving the vast majority of these immigrants directly into the Lower East Side, which is one neighborhood in the city. It's really, literally where the first one that you would hit. And it's where I worked until a few years ago. It's a very expensive neighborhood now. Emma Lazarus writes a poem with a stunning vision of generosity and abundance and the distinctive difference of who America might become. We were not yet that at all. Not a racially, ethnically, religiously, or culturally defined nation, but a nation of generosity, of friendship, of optimism, of space, and for those for whom there was no other place. Emma Lazarus wrote her poem in 1883. The statue went up in 1903, so that it took a long time to raise this money, and with that poem on the pedestal. So although there was significant migration to the United States in the, in the late 19th century, this largest wave of migration that I just referred to was actually after that. 
it was after the poem was actually written. It was the early 1900s. The poem was prescient. She was the descendant of Jewish immigrants from, get this, talk about migration, from Portugal, who would come to the colony of New Amsterdam in the 1700s from Recife in Brazil, where they had settled. So Portugal, Recife, New Amsterdam. And that was not an uncommon migration path at that time. What's interesting is the reason they left Recife to come to New Amsterdam was the Inquisition, which colonialism is amazing, right? The Portuguese brought the Inquisition to where my parents are from in Kerala. They also got it all the way over to Brazil. So these wealthy traders moved to New Amsterdam, this family. They were kind of true New York bluebloods from before the time of the English. And it was this one, she, their descendant, who defines, because our constitution does not name this particular reality that is so defining of us, she defines for us that migration is one of our defining features as a country. So anxiety comes somewhere before hope. I promise I'm gonna end on hope. Whose country is this anyway? Whose struggles are our primary concern? The theologian Eric Beretta says it this way, Colonial, colonialism has told us the table is ours, we own it, and everyone else is a guest. I stand before the church often and say, this is not our table, but the table of the Lord. But I say it because, frankly, I absolutely feel like it is my table. I am responsible for what happens at that table, at that altar, right? What is said, what is distributed, and to whom, right? I am by vow obligated to own the space. But Eric says, Colonial, colonialism has told us the table is ours and everyone else is a guest. Eric Barreto, he's a, a, I think he's an evangelical theologian. Um, colonialism has told us the table is ours, we own it, and everyone else is a guest. So I learned yesterday um, that everyone in this country doesn't yet know who Barbara Brown Taylor is, which is shocking to me. <laughs> so write that down if you haven't heard her yet here. Um, you, you need to know who she is. Um, she's so well known in my context that we just call her BBT. Um, she is um, Baylor University, which is in Texas, a Baptist university. Again, very, it's very arrogant on their part, puts out a list of the 10 best preachers in the English language every year. And as you can imagine, it's mostly Baptists, and it's mostly like old white men who are Baptists, and they're all very good. She's consistently on that list. She's an Episcopal priest, um, which is quite something to have broken into, and it's just true. Yeah, so she is a, she's an Episcopal priest, and she's a, she's a preacher, and she is a, an extremely evocative preacher. She's a very quiet person, um, and she's very scholarly. She tells these compelling stories, um, right, so she can kind of take, take very high kind of grand theology and break it down into a story of a guy and a truck on a back road in Georgia. So she says this about faith, and she has um, written very honestly about her own encounter with college students in South Georgia, which is a rural place, one of those places that would say they don't get to control the narrative. People tell stories of them, not with them. Um, a very disenfranchised place in every way. There's no great industry in South Georgia. They were on the losing side of the Civil War. And if you're black in South Georgia, you're on the losing, losing, losing side of the Civil War. So it's a, a tough place to be. And it's beautiful, as places like that often are. Gorgeous landscape. 
So she says this at, in response to her encounter with people of no faith, um, <coughs> Muslims, Hindus, um, the people that the people that come to this college, right, in this context of Georgia. She says she finds often that saying we have faith has often meant that we have faith that that won't happen to us. It's a complicated way to say it. Saying we have faith has often meant that we have faith that that won't happen to us, that we'll never be the person at the door of the church that everyone hopes might not come in or might be looking for something else, that we'll never be the neighbor that most of the neighbors are glad moved away, right? That we will never be in a place where we are the excluded one. It's a harsh thing to say to all of us, but I do think that some of our anxiety comes not just from what is happening to others, which I feel very aware of the certain things that I'm aware of that are happening to others, of the injustice around me. She says some part of it is, but could it happen to us? And I think a part of what Nadia is saying as well about hope and anxiety is that Part of what faith is, is that it's constantly contested, right? That our own faith is breaking all the time. Our faith in ourselves, our faith in our communities, our faith in our neighbors, our faith in the good people that tell us we belong here, that we deserve our safety, that maybe others don't, right? That we're okay, that that faith is being contested all the time. Sometimes by teaching from a pulpit, maybe, but I doubt it, frankly, right? Most often by our lived reality in the world. It is our faith that is being contested, which creates anxiety. And if we can't get somewhere with anxiety, we stay in these cycles of anxiety. But my belief is that we are very, very close to hope. What she and so many public theologians have brought forward for us recently is that faith is happening to us in real time. As Nadia would say, in our bodies, in this life. You're working out your salvation, not in the grand landscape of a narrative of good guys and bad guys in a book or on the ceiling or somewhere far from you. It's working out in the body that you live in, in this life, in this place. So everything, applies, right? That's what church is for. The atrocities committed in the name of Jesus the Christ, or the church, or by Christian nations, or Christian people, happen because Christian people separate what is happening in the real world around us and to us in this embodied incarnate, if you want, right? In the meat and flesh of our bodies. We can only be accomplices to the harm we see if we believe that the Christian life is not lived out here. We do act at times as if it is on some other plane, right, where they're all about battling it out, while our job as Christians is to smile and be kind here. No matter what we are actually doing to one another in the systems of the world that we live in, or regardless of what is being done in our name or supposedly on our behalf. 
So I'm just quoting my friends today because it's that kind of day. My friend Rachel Timoner is a rabbi in Brooklyn, a great prophetic, poetic leader, and very, very effective community organizer, which is a, rarely a combination that I find. So she writes this year for Rosh Hashanah 5780, right? Amazing, right? This year in our political reality. She tells us that a story of a prince, and I won't tell it to you, but basically a person who had everything and wants to see God. Makes sense. Goes around, goes to beautiful and fancy places, sees nothing. And then finally an old woman, because it's always an old woman that will help you to see God, um, takes, the pers- takes him to a place where he sees suffering. And he has not seen suffering before, because he's a prince. So it's a small house and a little girl, and she's lost her parents, and it was a horrible journey, actually, and it's injured, and it's awful. She tells the prince the story, and he cries. And the woman, of course, puts a mirror in front of his face and says, what do you see? And he says, I see myself crying. And she answers, and now you have seen God. So what my friend the rabbi says is, There has been so much crying in this year, and so much reason to cry. Cry for those murdered in synagogues. Cry for black churches burning. Cry for people dying of hunger, right? Of knife crime, as you said. She says, cry for the Jews of our own borough attacked in Brooklyn. There has been anti-Semitic crime in Brooklyn, one of the most Jewish and diverse places you can find, where we know how to live with each other. Cry for the refugee children locked up, wailing for their parents. Cry for the mothers and fathers sick over their stolen children. Cry for the sisters and brothers in our country fallen by guns weekly. Cry for the women and girls degraded, intimidated, violated. Cry for those behind bars because they are poor or black or brown. Cry for those overdosed or addicted. Cry for those knee-deep in floodwaters, for those masked against towering fires and billowing smoke. And find the tears, find the tears for our species, and for the birds, and for the butterflies, and for the bees, and for the forests, and all the dying things. She says that if we just sat here, all of us, and cried today, that might be the most eloquent response to the year that we have just lived through. That might be a way to see God. Now, of course, you know no one's going to leave you there, right? And Jews have a particularly gifted liturgical cycle for tears and regret, right? That's part of what they're doing. But what she says that's shocking to me, um, because she is so able, is she says, I need to admit to you that I've been stuck. I have been doubting whether I'm up to the task of leading in this moment. She said, three years ago, I told you there's an election coming up and we've got work to do. Two years ago, I gave you little metal hearts to put in your pockets to remind you of how strong your heart is and that love is real, even when it seems that all there is around you is fear. Last year, I spoke about faith and hope, she said, not giving up on each other or on our people. And then she says, this year, for the first time, I can't see a way. That's something. Can you imagine hearing that from your rabbi? 
She said if someone asked us ten years ago whether we would ever go about our daily lives while immigrant children were torn from their parents and held in cages, we would say never. We would do anything to shut that down. And yet here we are. Some of the smartest people she says she knows, and we've all been in these conversations together, have worked for months to do something, anything. And what she says is, we could not find a way to free these children or reunite these families while we have an administration in office like ours because moral suasion doesn't work when cruelty is the point. What do we organize against? I'm telling you because I think you're living in a very similar reality, right? So what she says is, well, I'll just read this part because it's actually amazing. She says, and this is what is happening in our country, we do know that white people are losing their majority status in our country, and some don't like it. We do know that global migration will only increase with the impacts of climate change. We do know that a reaction to these trends is an impulse towards authoritarianism and scapegoating. She says, which are never good for Jews. I'd say never good for any of us. These trends are bigger than one president or one prime minister. There are also hopeful signs that a clear majority in our country is rejecting that kind of populism, hate-based. In our national conversation, we are speaking about long-ignored fundamental problems in our country like systemic racism, misogyny, and the concentration of wealth with a refreshing honesty. We have not done it before. Children in our country and in this country are rising up to demand that we reverse climate change and control guns in our country. She says that long ago when map makers reached uncharted territory, they would decorate the edges of the maps with pictures of sea monsters and other terrifying beasts of dragons and the words, here be dragons. She says, we don't know what lies ahead or what we'll find there. So what do we do? She says this, when our people went into the depths of the sea on their way out of Egypt, they didn't find sea monsters or dragons. According to the Midrash, one, I love, there's some others that are equally gorgeous. They found an orchard planted right at the bottom of the fearsome sea. A mother holding a crying baby on their way to freedom reached out her hand and plucked ripe fruit right there in the middle of the sea, in the middle of their journey. When all was unknown, with the waves towering above them and Pharaoh's army menacing behind them, there was fruit, there was beauty, there was sweetness, and there was sustenance. There might be dragons out there somewhere, she said, but there is always ripe fruit. And we are a people, she says, who know that we need sweetness to sustain us on our way through perilous seas. And who knows what we will find there? Maybe the face of God. So she says, knowing us, there will be many tears involved, maybe tears of fear and tears of sorrow. Please, God, let there also be tears of redemption and relief, of gratitude, of delight, 
of strength, of love, of turning, of salvation. So my question for you is if we are standing at the bottom of a sea on our way to a freedom we have not ever experienced and generations of our people have not experienced, something brand new off in the land where we've told there are dragons, where do you see around you fruit? So I have a very particular story um, of it's different than a fruit tree at the bottom of the ocean, which I still think is a gorgeous image. Um, but I have, I have an image that comes from central India, which um, speaks to the idea of anxiety leading to hope. Right? And so these stories of the, of the crossing of the Red Sea, to begin with, right? um, there are many, there's a lot of midrash around what happened while the people were in, um, in the water. And th that was a lot of time. And Midrash is fun. I wish we approached, approached the text a little bit more like that because you can really play for a while. You're not seeking just one truth or one version of the story. You get to speculate right, and think about it. So another Midrash about the crossing of the Red Sea. There's so many good ones. One is, um, I'll give you two more, two. And then we'll, I'll give you one and then we'll have tea and then I'll give you some more. Um, is that Moses had no idea what he was doing. It's a good one. And it helps in a political time like this in all of our countries uh, that we shouldn't be waiting for Moses. So the idea is that the people have run out of slavery, right? They grabbed their stuff, followed the directions, got out of there because they could. And Moses is out front, sort of, because remember, he was very reluctant. He was pretty sure he wasn't compelling to them. He's very compromised, right? A son of the courts, right? He's not legitimate. He hasn't slaved away like the rest of them and then he was a murderer and then he fled so he's a coward and he's married a foreigner right that's who Moses is and this one has come back from shepherding out there having a good time in freedom to say oh God has told me we're going to be free now right so ah, he's not that compelling is the way this this midrash reads so everyone's leaving and no one's really following him because why would you who is this guy right but they're out because God's miraculous power is visible. Everyone can see it. All the plagues have come. They're out. They encounter the sea. Of course, Moses would lead us to the sea. Of course. He must have known it was here. He's been here before. We haven't been here. What an idiot, right? And nobody has a plan. And Moses goes off to pray, which is how it has worked for Moses in the past. So while he's praying, Pharaoh's army is getting closer. You can see the dust and people, you know, they can see that they are in trouble and Moses, of course, got them here. It's a very Jewish telling of a Jewish story, right? It's very like, eh, to everybody, it's good. And the armies are getting closer and closer. Moses is praying, they think, for all they know, he's abandoned them. He's not getting a good word from anyone about what to do. So it gets closer and closer. The story is told slowly, it takes a long time. It's excruciating, I won't do that to you. Um, and it says that this guy called Naktan, Naktun Naktan, takes a step into the water. Nobody notices because everyone's busy fighting about what a mess this is and waiting for Moses to lead the way or someone. And he just keeps walking in the water. And it gets up to his knees and it gets up to his thighs. And then his family starts to notice that he's out there, and he might be one of those guys, like he's the guy that would be in the water at a time like this. But there he goes, 
And then it says the people sort of fall quietly as he keeps walking towards the water, and Mo- in the water, and Moses is nowhere in sight. He's walking and walking, and he gets to hear and to hear, and no one's shouting at him anymore because he can't hear from where he is. And he gets up to hear, and he gets up to hear, and he gets up to hear, and the water's part. Isn't it beautiful? Um, and everybody goes rushing across the water, and so Moses is in there somewhere with a stick in the air, like this, this you know. It's a great story about people's movements and how things work, right? Um, so I told this story, again, uh, such a mistake on my part, in front of some rabbi friends once, and they had, never, they had never heard it. I heard it from a rabbi, so I know it's legit. I heard it from a rabbi in a public gathering. They had not heard it. And so as I finished, they said, what the story that they had heard that they would have attached to this is that as the people are crossing the sea, they look to the left and see all the generations that have come before them. And they look to the right and get a glimpse of everything, all the generations that are to come and know that they will survive. 